Hello, my fellow sovereigns. As always, let's give ourselves a hot dose of gratitude for choosing content that uplifts, inspires, enlightens, and educates us to become better. And my guest this week, Rochelle Courtney, does just that in an epic way. I met Rochelle several months ago. She's the boss luncheon here in Australia. And when I started researching her, I was like, oh my gosh, this woman has done extraordinary things. And meanwhile, she is the humblest, most down-to-earth person you will meet. And it was from that experience and seeing the success of what she has built with Share the Dignity in how it is a nationwide, country-wide program across Australia helping end period poverty. You will listen in this episode to how far mission will motivate you, how far finding that thing, that calling, that stirring on your heart will drive you. I also encourage you to listen to Rochelle's productivity style because it is different than anything I'd heard prior to. And after this interview and after researching it a bit, especially with the fact that Rochelle's entire business rotates around periods and helping end period poverty for homeless people, I found that fact that her productivity system is so dialed in on a monthly basis that it just fits so perfectly. You will hear how she expanded her vision, what she is leaning into next with this gigantic mission that she has. And now I bring you Rochelle Courtney, founder of Share the Dignity. Welcome to the Princess and the Bee podcast, the place to be to build your empire as queen of your body, business, and life. I'm your host, Kimberly Spencer, founder of crownyourself.com, and I'm an award-winning coach, Amazon best-selling author, and multi-passionate entrepreneur. Each week, I give you the systems, strategies, and success stories to help you master your mindset, communicate with ease, and triple your productivity so you make the income and the impact you deserve. Imagine this podcast as your weekly spark of inspiration as you take it to the next level with all the bees of your life, body, business, bank account, boys, and babies. Let's make it rain. Hello, hello, and welcome back to the Princess and the Bee. Rochelle, I am so excited to have you here. Oh my goodness, there is so much where to begin with Share the Dignity. Like, I would just first love to dive into your story and what inspired you to create this not-for-profit. Yeah, it's exciting to join you. I've been waiting to um, have a chat to you for a while now, so it's it's a thrill to to sit down and share a virtual cuppa, yeah? So let's start with how it started. I was reading an article that was written online that talked about how many homeless women there were in Australia. And at that stage, there were 48,000 women who didn't have somewhere safe to call home. And I just thought that is an extraordinary amount of women that don't have somewhere to call home, right? Um, but what I read next actually changed my life and it changed the lives of many for Australia, right? It was that they were going without sanitary items and that instead they were having to use socks and newspaper and wadded up toilet paper to deal with their period. And this is what a journalist was writing. And I was like, how does that even happen here in Australia? I would imagine that would happen in a third world country, right? Probably never thought about it, but I could imagine that that would happen there. And then when I Googled, it actually wasn't the first article to ever be written on the problem. And the problem had never even had a name. So now we call it period poverty, right? But back then didn't even have a name. You couldn't search anything other than a couple of stories. There was no one in the world doing what we now do. Um, so at that stage, I actually had my own personal training business and a photography business. And I asked all my clients um, to bring me one packet of pads or tampons for every wine they had that month. Yeah, we did okay. Um, they uh, they were fabulous. So some of them would just come with bags and go, you know what, just take them. <laughs> so, um, but it was really about the whole thing that I just don't think that there is a woman in Australia who wouldn't be empathetic to knowing that a young girl's having to use a sock or a newspaper or wadded up toilet paper to deal with her period. And that was my job too. How do we amplify that voice so that everybody has that 
no way that can't be happening moment right so literally I collected in my local area we collected 450 packets of pads and tampons which we thought was so amazing we were so proud of ourselves we literally surrounded had this picture with our local counselor and put pads and tampons and had this I had this photographer come up above the top of us so that people and I set the Facebook page up on the 1st of March in actual fact I probably had my daughter set the Facebook page up because I really didn't have the skill sets that were needed to be able to do what was done but though those donations went off to five different local charities and it's not like we were giving a woman a warm jacket or a pair of shoes and it would be able to help her for years this was a monthly problem um and the problem is is and even now i'm like it's so much worse than i ever ever imagined so if we fast forward sort of six years on we're looking at that we've collected 3.1 million packets of pads and tampons now we work with around 3,000 charities around australia and we have five and a half thousand volunteers that we call sheroes and heroes that make this magic happen so whether they're on the gold coast or they're in Warrnambool and Victoria, they're the advocates of change in their town that make us help us to address barrier poverty. That's extraordinary. And I mean, it's interesting being a Los Angeles transplant living in the Gold Coast, because when I hear Australians talk about the homeless problem, I'm like, you have no idea. (laughs) I've been to San Francisco and I've never seen anything like it, like it was over there. It's horrific. Yeah. And in in Los Angeles, we lived in a nice area um, in Koreatown and just walking two blocks to the store, I'd have to step over a homeless person. And there is something that 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 does to your mentality of like, this is not okay, but it it becomes so commonplace that it's just it's just kind of expected. Yeah. And it's it's so it's so shameful that that would be happening in a first world country. Like Absolutely. you said, like, this Absolutely. Is and you know, even when I was at school, I'd never seen a homeless, I'd never seen a homeless person. I'd never seen ever a home, a woman who was experiencing homelessness. Um, and now I, now I know where they live. I know where they're hiding, um, but they're just not as visible as men who are experiencing homeless, right? Because they're so fearful of um, their safety. And I'll never forget um, meeting this amazing young woman who had fled from DB. She was probably in her late 30s. She was sleeping in a dumpster that she knew only got emptied twice a week outside of an office. It never had food scraps. It was only um, the, the, the detail that she knew of what went into that bin and how that bin kept her safe was remarkable. And But how does that be somebody's home? Because she fled from DV, she did nothing wrong. She just went into the wrong relationship with the wrong person, right? Changed her life. So what walk me through the process of how you turn this into, in, into your mission, into your into your life's work, because you you'd had a business before and you were you were helping, but how did you what was that evolution like as you decided yeah. to grow into this as a, as a it business? was to be honest, a tornado. (laughs) It was, um, there was no real prep or planning. Um, It went from being a local idea to a national charity in a a heartbeat. It went from a friend called me in the May and said, she worked in domestic violence services. um, Can we get some more pads and tampons? I said, absolutely, you can. Um, I did a post on my little local little literally it was a share the dignity page but 236 people that were on there I probably knew every single one of them it went viral it was really that power of social media where it actually a Melbourne comedian M. Rusciano picked it up and went oh my god how is this happening and really used her voice um to escalate it and then it just went it literally went viral um and I had probably myself and three other volunteers at that stage of working out, you know, oh, what do we do in Queensland? But it just went everywhere. And it was like 200 messages every single day coming into the Facebook page. How do I help? Sharing stories of how they'd been through period poverty or seen things happen. And I'll never forget actually hearing from a woman in Northern Territory who talked about working in a petrol station and how, um, a woman had come in and actually bled across the floor, stolen the sanitary items off the shelf, went into the bathroom, was in there for about an hour, came back out, 
And she said, what was less dignified, stealing them or going without? And she just had to turn her back. What was she going to do? Call the police on this woman who desperately just needed sanitary items? And, you know, I just think that was the actual pivotal moment where I went, um, because other people were like, just do it in this area, just do it here where until you grow, until you know what you're doing. And I'm like, how do I not help that lady? How do I not? And everything that I've probably ever done has been more around not how do I do it? How do I not do it? How do I not help every? Because to be really honest, to help remote Indigenous communities is really bloody hard. It costs a lot of money um, and it it takes a lot more work and it has taken years and years of trust of building relationships with the communities out there that was much harder to help. But every girl, every woman, everywhere should have access to sanitary items. Just because it's harder doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. Mm. So, yeah, so literally we, um, little did I know, though, in order to have this charity, did I need to have a constitution, a board of directors, licences and permits in every state, insurances, and so much more. But, you know, I say that I just surrounded myself with amazing people. Honestly, when people say, oh, you've done an amazing job, I just sit in this fear that people don't understand that I didn't do it all. I just surrounded myself with amazing people who had skill sets. My husband was the first person to go, right, how do we How do we do that? We need to get, I've got a friend I went to school, the friend is a lawyer. They donated $30,000 of pro bono work to get our constitution up and everybody who was on our very first infant board was a friend or a client who was a personal training client and so it you know it's absolutely evolved and everybody who's came along and what I call jumped on the dignity train has jumped on for a little or a long time but really had a massive impact so yeah so I value every single one of them and know that I probably work to what's my strength and what to other people's strengths because there was only so many hours in every day. So one of the things that I I think that you did so fabulously that I'm just hearing is surrounding yourself with these amazing people with different skill sets than you have. What is your skill set that's really your genius zone, as I would call it? Yeah, I'm probably a hustler. I'm probably the person who can get people to do what I need them to do, ensuring that they feel valued and respected. And I think that really comes from having played netball, having coached netball all my life, understanding that every netball, did you, is that what you just asked? It's like a sport, honey. It's like Australia's most played sport by women. So netball is a, no, not even close, not even close. Netball, no. I'll send you, I'll send you a link to netball. (laughs) I will have to Um, learn what netball is because I've never um, heard of netball. Oh my God. Yeah. Netball is played by more people in Australia than any other sport. So Netball is where seven women take to the court and they all play a really integral role to either win or lose or play a really fun game. And it's not always about winning is what I always coached when I had, you know, the relationships that you build along the way, the trust that you have to have in your teammates and making sure that the person who can shoot the best is given every opportunity to shine in that spot. And know that that doesn't make her any more important than the person who's the goalkeeper who has to try and stop the other person from getting it in. It's really about how does everybody play to their own strengths. I think that's probably been my biggest skill set. Is just finding other people's strengths and then allowing them to be in those roles. Yeah, and to and to allow people to shine bright. I want everybody around me to shine as bright as they can and be their biggest biggest um champions of themselves oh that is that just makes no that just makes me so happy because like were you born with this skill set or or how did you cultivate the skill set of just wanting to see everybody in their in their light yeah well I think that obviously I think that that's come from being a netball coach and being a a player I really think that their skill sets that playing in a sport when you're younger, really teach you to be better in a workplace, better in a family environment, better as a partner. There's so many skill sets that you learn from sport, unfortunately, says the sports Nazi lady. So I don't know what that would look like in leadership if you didn't play sport, right? Mm -hmm. So um, for me, I probably always had the ability and always had the 
um, gift of the gab of being able, if I was passionate, and, I, you know, I've been really lucky in my life to have always worked in a job where I've really loved it. I've really loved it. I've liked that never has there ever been a, probably a job except for the one where, you know, I remember doing a, having to go off and do a temp job probably in my 20s and I had to just type for like six hours straight. And I think I remember going to the lunch break and never going back again because it didn't involve people. So, um, yeah, so really just making sure I am a people person and that's my skill set, right? Yeah. I am not an IT person. I'm not, although I'm very good at um, keeping it really simple, stupid, not overcomplicating things. And time management is probably my other really, I'm anally organized and I'm really good in time management. So what is it about, can you give us a few tips of how you best manage your time managing a national organization? Yeah, I was lucky enough to do a course with um, Kate Christie um, on time management and she is the time management guru of the world, right? And she donated her time to me. So I spent six months in a course with her about what um, playing to your best strengths, making sure that um, any time that you're going, what is the best use of my time? So now I lead 17 staff and five and a half thousand volunteers. So it is massive. So we, you know, we think outside of the box as well. And to give you an example of things that we do a little bit differently here um, is we have a focus week once a month. So all of our staff in that month, that is the month where all meetings take place. It is about communication, connection, clarity and making sure that everything we need to be able to do the rest of our job is captured in that week and we are planning ahead. So nothing that you should be doing in that focus week should be for immediate stuff. It should be for the month ahead. Um, And then following focus week is productivity week and that is where you are head down, bum up, no meetings. Don't even, my staff don't have to come to the office if they do not want to. They can work from home but they can come into the office if they want to. And I think that's one of the things that we've learned from COVID is that it doesn't matter where you are. I mean, and if you don't trust your staff to not work from home, then you've got the wrong staff, right? So I think our staff really value the fact that they, you know, they have that ability to do that. And to be honest, they're punching out work like never before. So that allows me then to not be interrupted (laughs) because when we're here, I'm like the glue, but I'm also the interrupter because I get so passionate about things and I love their faces and I love the energy that we all create to be able to help the women that we help. So what are the things that you really focus on as the visionary leader of Share the Dignity during your your productivity time? Because this is one of the things that a lot of leaders, especially new entrepreneurs I see struggle with is they're looking for like the doings of the things that they need to be doing. And they're used to the things that they've delegated doing already. So they're not quite, sh- they're in that sort of in-between phase of like, what is it that they do? So I'd love to know what is it that you do during that productivity week? Yeah, so productivity week for me is the most important week of the whole month. So focus week is really not about me. Focus week is about making sure that my team can do what they need to do. And productivity week is about, what do I need to do? So for me, it's about um, making sure that I do thought piece. I call them founder Friday pieces. So they're about thought leadership, writing that content. It's about doing the stuff that only I can do. So if I've got the most amazing next grand idea and I need a grant to be able to make that come to fruition, I need to make sure that I can put all of those bits and pieces into my head onto a piece of paper so that I can then bring the team on the journey. But it's also Productivity Week for me is about advocacy pieces. It's about um, going in and speaking to the politicians that can help me make the changes that I need to to see in this world. But also it's about it. literally where I'm in the middle of planning a global period poverty forum. So for me, Productivity Week is that piece. That's I only I can do that. So that is my highest body of work. And, you know, Productivity Week is for me to make sure that the goals that I have for in one year are all nailed so that when we come to, when I pass it on to the team, they've got everything that they need from me. And I literally am passing the baton for them to do the rest of the run. That is amazing. And I, so you're now taking Share the Dignity Global? Well, no, what I'm doing is, and this came about, one, because I thought we would have to take Share the Dignity Global. I thought we would need to do it. But 
more and more I've been doing mentoring for people around the world, you know, oh, you do, you, what you do is amazing. Can I have half an hour of your time? I'm like, yeah, absolutely. And remember, time is precious, right? So this is where at one stage a couple of years ago, I was doing so much of it and I actually had to come down to, and it wasn't, I would help any charity anywhere at any time because they're the people that change the world, right? Even speaking to uni students, like I, it's really rare that I wouldn't help somebody, but I literally had to say to, um, this is the three hour window once a month that is available for mentoring because it was taking me away from what I needed to do. So it really became apparent that lots of people wanted to talk to me and learn from what we were doing. And I literally was helping Danica from the period place in New, in New Zealand. And she's like, oh, my God, I wish I had talked to you eight months ago. I could have liked so much. And I literally got off the phone and I thought, you know what, I'm really over hearing from Nigeria, how do we help them? Ireland, how do we help them? How do we do this? Why don't we pull together a global period poverty forum, make sure all the people who are doing this amazing work around the country, have all the tools to be able to do it. Let's make sure we all learn from each other, find connection, get clarity, make sure that we can all join our resources so that we can have a bigger impact around the world. Absolutely. So, yeah, so I'm really excited because for me that means that, yes, we're still sharing the dignity in Australia and that is what my team are doing, but now we've moved into a space. How do we have an impact around the world you know, to amplify our voices, to remove the shame and stigma, to look at different ways things are done. So I'm now already set up a 10 people advisory content board. I've got Zoom on board. I've got some major corporates who are really interested in being, and that's my skill set. How do we connect everybody to be able to raise up to make a difference wherever you are? And that is, I'm so glad you said that. I have so many clients that I am so excited for this episode that they hear that because sometimes that skill set of being that connector is when, especially because being American, there's a almost a pride in the doing and it's like doing busy work versus the connecting work is the stuff that can really create that expansion of impact. So as you're building this, I'm curious, what have you noticed are the differences in the countries between the period poverty? Well, I mean, the problem exists everywhere. I just think that when we look at it, the difference is that whatever they're doing in America is very different to what we're doing. The goals are all the same. Every time I've like reached out to everybody in every country, they're like, oh, that's exactly what we're doing, but we're doing it this way. And we're, oh, I wish I had known you were doing it like that. It's really that everybody is doing things solely. And once we've all come together and we've united, imagine the world will be different and how we can go, oh, you know what? That is a brilliant idea. Let's all do, let's all try that. And, uh, you know, there's also the point of you can learn the most from people's failures. Don't do that. We tried it and this is what happened, right? So, you know, being really real and raw, and I hope that this Global Period Poverty Forum that is happening in October 2022 in Brisbane, we've got a core on board as well, um, will be the first of that happening every second year around the world. So what have you, what were the, speaking of failures, what were your greatest ones along the along the journey of building Share the Dignity? I'd have to say, I would absolutely have to say never realising the importance of the data early on, right? So we've only just collected a body of data. I mean, we didn't know what we didn't know, but I wish that I'd surrounded myself with more researchy people, which are probably the complete opposite to me, right? So I kind of always just generated to the people that I knew that I needed to get the stuff done, but I really should have I really wish someone had guided me and said, if you collect this data, you'll have much more impact. So being more of a data-driven. Yeah, yeah. Rather than just, like, how did you use to I'm a doer, right? So I'm a doer and I just, yeah. like, I just get in there and do what needs to be done. And literally, I just wish that at the beginning someone had said to me, if you collect this data and this is the amount of money that you need to do it, and not, we, you know, we everything happens for a reason. I don't believe that we probably had the money to do it. And, you know, ultimately we were so successful in our bloody big survey 
because Facebook came on board with us and said, yeah, we're going to amplify that for you. We had 125,000 respondents in Australia. It's now the biggest body of data that the world's ever seen. If we probably tried it in year two, we probably would have had, you know, 3,000 people respond, but at least we would have had that, right? So, I mean, everything happens for a reason. I just wish that we, that I really am kicking myself that we, I didn't know that. I didn't think, I didn't think like that. I really don't think I had a lot of time to actually process a lot of thinking until COVID struck, right? When COVID struck, because ultimately my normal day would be going from one meeting at MasterCard, maybe another one, then at Woolworths and then another one at Facebook. And I would just go from one opportunity to the next and they're really I was still doing lots of the doing how was a truck going to pick up a pallet two pallets of products that you know Libra had donated and how was I going to get it out to remote indigenous community that was me everything was me but now since COVID started I've now got these amazing staff and we're probably one of the only charities that put on staff during COVID but it was the most opportune time for me to take all the caps off and go you know what you're going to wear this cap and I'm going to teach you everything I know to be able to do the job that I can, that I do, because I'm, I'm best out there. This is where I'm best. And this is where you're, you know, we got a logistics queen, somebody to help us with the stock and management of the drives and all of that sort of stuff. And she was a volunteer in Victoria and she, we moved her up here to come and be part of our full-time staff. And she, and, you know, just to have somebody that completely looks after that has allowed me to have the space to, even think about how to do things differently. That is so powerful and so true. So how has COVID, I know we had mentioned before we started recording about the impact on, do we call it a business or is it, it's not, not for profit? Well, it's a business. We're just in the business of making a difference, right? Yeah. So yeah. if we, if I'd never treated it like a business, would it have the sustainability or had the growth that we had? I always thought of Share the Dignity like it was a business and we were building a house. So I had to get, I had to get the foundation in right and I had to get that foundation right. And then we sort of had walls and sometimes I've said, oh, don't open that room, that's still messy. So just, you know, we park things in a room that it's been built but the walls are not painted and there's no furniture in it, everything's just chucked in there, right? And I'll give you an example. That may be that we have successfully onboarded new volunteers for six years but we know it's not done to the best of its um, capacity but we didn't have just keep the door shut and pretend that it doesn't really exist. Let's just open that when it's the right time to do that, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So we have been building a house for the last um, six years and I'd like to say that, you know, we are probably got some doors still shut in our house, but we're really, we're really proud of how far we've come. I think we've even got some trees growing in the front yard now. So, <laughs> yeah, we it. are a business. We're just in the business of making a difference. So... But COVID, like most businesses, has had a massive impact. And we've seen, we have seen poverty rise. So 3.2 million Australians live below the poverty line before COVID. Now that number is expected to be 5 million. We work with 5,000 charities, sorry, 3,000 charities around Australia. They may have requested, for example, donations from us of about 170,000 packets of sanitary items each drive. Now that has increased by about 30%, but our donations have decreased by about 28%. So there's this massive gap in there now. So we had to turn that from, I mean, we were always loved as the charity that you could actually physically buy what you wanted to give and put it in a collection box and know you never, people never needed to worry about where their money went because it was physical donations. You know, we do our three collections a year. We do August and March, Dignity Drives, where collection boxes go out in all Woolworths stores around Australia. And, you know, they'll be in chemists, they'll be in hairdressing salons and gyms and all of those sorts of places. And then at Christmas time in November, the last two weeks of November, we ask women to, or people, to put together a handbag, fill it with life's necessities, like shampoo, conditioner, toothbrush, toothpaste, deodorant and soap and sanitary items, the very basic of things that we all have in our bathroom. But if you fled domestic violence... And you've got nothing. You don't have those basic of essentials. And they also don't get Christmas presents at Christmas time. So we ask that people drop those bags into Bunnings in the last two weeks of November. So to give you an example, last year, every year we normally collect around average 140,000 of those bags to give out to women um, and girls around Australia for Christmas. 
It is always maybe 20,000 short of what has been requested, but last year we only collected 90,000. I was crying. I was beside myself sobbing because it felt like I couldn't do what those women needed me to do for them. And so lots of people missed out. We had charities literally sending us not very nice. What am I going to give my client? What am I going to give the people who've got nothing for Christmas? I'm like, we can only give what we get donated, right? And people in Australia already do it. They're doing it so tough, right? And that it's not like it's like they're just thinking about themselves, and they should be because it's a, such a changing world. What I need this Christmas is for people to think about what it would be like if you had nothing, and how do you dig a little bit deeper than what you've done before? Yeah, I read a, a really beautiful poem from one of my mentors. She shared it on Facebook, and it it was a poem by forget her name, but it was called a pandemic for the rich and on how, you know, when you're blessed with a family that you can share four walls with mm-hmm. like bummer that you may have to stay inside those four walls, but at least you're not threatened by a spouse or fearing for your children. And the fact that you're now trapped in that four walls and those four, four walls are a prison, not, not a home. And the the problem with that. So, I mean, I probably wouldn't get me started on that because I just think that we've all lost our ability to have a big pile of gratitude for what we've got, right? So, so you need to stay in your house that's safe with your TV and food in the fridge and you've got safety when I can go for a walk in the morning and see a woman who's camped up in her car with her two kids kids having fled domestic violence she would die to be in your position Mm. have somewhere safe to be right so I just think it's that you know that ability to think but I think that you know Australians or people around the world are really just not understanding what it's or have that understanding of what it's like to have nothing nothing and hopefully none of them need to be there right yeah, hopefully, hopefully none of them need to be there or have to escape that sort of situation. Yeah. As as a leader, how are you navigating the COVID and especially being here in Australia with all the, the lockdowns? How is that impacting your your team and their their morale and and all the volunteers that you have around the country? Yeah, I know it's certainly different. I know that I we communicate through Workplace, um, which is like Facebook. But um, so that we have five and a half thousand volunteers. They're broken up into regions. But I am always doing video content. We're trying to interact. You know, what's for dinner at your place, and just trying to get people to have something. Like I can't even turn the TV on anymore, right? Because it's just full of sadness and sorrow. And so where's the light in people's life? And you know what, if that's what we can be, then that's what my job is right now is just to be some light in people's lives. So where do you see, what's your, what's your big vision for where show the dignity will go in the next 10 years? Yeah, in 10 years time, well, not in 10 years, actually, we are six years old. By the time we are 10 years old, I don't want there to be an Australian that doesn't know about Share the Dignity. So it'll be secondhand like it is the Salvos or Lifeline or any of those. I want it to be everybody knows about it because you can't. I don't know a woman in Australia who wouldn't be empathetic to understanding that a girl has gone into a laundromat to steal socks to be able to deal with a period. Like it's such an easy solution. It's an easy problem for us to have a solution to, right? So I do hope that the government makes changes I I know that the things that we're looking for is access to sanitary items in every school so whether that's primary school high school and tertiary education every girl deserves to have an education like every boy does and sometimes we have barriers which is about access to sanitary items and education like why are we not educating boys girls and women and men how do we expect our sons to become a great employer or a great partner if we're not educating them about menstruation? It's just ridiculous. I find it, it's negligible for us to not actually teach them. So I'm really looking for changes where the government understands that there is an impact on the world by not educating boys and girls. And still to this day, we don't educate boys about menstruation. We separate them. And that starts the shame and stigma around menstruation. And I know that we've come a really long way. I want us to then not to be that shame and stigma. And if I compare that to 
gay pride, if I compare that to Black Lives Matter, I want there to be a movement where what we call period pride. I want people to just talk about periods like they're talking about what they watched on TV. I just don't see the difference between us having a conversation about having a period to watching a game of football and seeing blood on somebody's face. I mean, no one wants to see either of those, right? But let's just have conversations about it so we remove that shame and stigma so that if, you know, I remember being a woman who suffered severely from endometriosis and two days out of every month I couldn't work but nobody knew. I didn't even know. I never talked about how severe my periods were because I no one talked about it. Mm. I didn't know they were abnormal to start with, but I certainly wasn't telling my boss I had period pain. Yeah. I mean, I have two boys and my husband, and I remember when I first started dating my husband, I opened a drawer and he had like tampons and sanitary napkins and everything in there. And I was like, smart man. Yeah. <laughs> he just, Clever. The normal normal part of womanhood and he's like I oh god bless him and you kept him (laughs) oh I kept him I married him and I made him have babies (laughs) (laughs) and and you know my son has asked me as well about because he he as a four-year-old boy he he gets a scratch and suddenly it's the biggest thing on the planet that he's had blood and so he was concerned when mommy like you you know because kids just march into the bathroom because they just absolutely what what boundaries (laughs) he was concerned with one day he saw mommy having blood and he was like do you have an allower I said no honey it's just normal It's just a normal (laughs) part of it. And he was, so we made it a part of the conversation to just normalize it because it's going to be something that all women that will be in his life will deal with. Absolutely. Absolutely. But that takes you having been educated by your mum. So what if you were never, and this is the problem is that period poverty is normally so linked to that shame and stigma one they don't have access to to menstrual products but they also have such a severe shame and stigma around menstruation and a lack of education right so you know if that would probably never happen in your home because you've educated and you don't have that shame and stigma and I'll never forget we put in a um, vending machine in a and a vending machine is we I actually created a world first so it's a vending machine Um, that dispenses for free two pads and six tampons. And um, it also has a timing mechanism on them so that they would never be wasted. Anyway, we installed one in our domestic violence services and I was up there on the Thursday doing the unveil with the town mayor and this amazing woman come up to me and said she still have remnants of of a black eye and said, I came into this shelter on Monday, battered and bruised, and she said I needed help. Um, legal help. I needed some psychological help for my daughter. I had no money. I had no clothes. And this, unba- embarrassingly, is the third time I've come to the shelter looking for help. And then I got my period on, t- on Tuesday and she said, and I just cried and cried and cried. And I couldn't go and ask them because no, people don't talk about periods. And I'd already used up all my asks, is what she said. And she said, and the vending machine was installed on the Wednesday afternoon. She said, and I just cried because I didn't have to go without pads and tampons. Like, to me, that's the, you know, that there's that thing. We can always have access to sanitary items, give people out. But for the vending machines, it's about having dignity for those that would never ask anybody. So what, do, what does that mean? I'd love to know your interpretation of what does that mean to have dignity? Well, to be able to deal with your period like the rest of us would deal with our period, right? You know, I just think that, being able to go through life without being embarrassed by something and dignity is involved in lots of pieces of your life, right? But this is one piece as Australians we can help our sisters out on. We can make sure that they have access to sanitary items and while their life is already tough enough, would you imagine having fled domestic violence and your boys are in your car and you've got your period and you've got $5 and you've got to feed them or you've got to buy sanitary items? We all know that you're going to feed your children, right? So, you know, We just need to make sure that if she needs something, that we're there for her when it comes to access to sanitary items. I wish we could fix all the problems in the world, right? I wish we could build 100 new homes every single day so that no woman should ever have to stay in a domestic violence relationship or in that trauma, but that's never going to, that's just never going to be the case. That's something that I've probably learned is stay in my lane, 
do what I do best because I have veered off on a couple of occasions over the years. So, so, and when you, when you veered off, what was it that brought you back on track? With passion. So I've obviously veered off with passion. Um, And to be, to be honest, there was a stage where we were paying for the funerals of those that were killed by domestic violence and simply because no one else was doing it. And it was in March 2017, I think, that I sat in my car and I cried and cried because there were three women in one week who were killed by their, by their partner, someone who once said that they loved them. And this family, and it was literally just over the bridge from me, so five minutes away, and that woman was killed like two weeks ago and her family of four children were pleading on the radio to help pay for the funeral. I'm like, what on earth is this? This is just, where's the dignity in that? Like, where is the dignity in that? And unfortunately, as I unraveled, this was not a one-off problem. This was huge. And to be honest, GoFundMe were making around $130,000 a year from people who were, the, you know, the 9% that they were making on people trying to just bury their loved ones. So imagine the stress that. Um, so, yeah, so I went back to my board and said, we have to fund these funerals. They're like, where are you going to get that money from? I'm like, we'll just work it out along the way, right? So uh, we actually partnered with White Lady Funerals who helped us. Um, but that was an ad- that ended up being a really big advocacy piece where I just went to every attorney general and said, this is absolute bullshit. There is no way that this should be down to a charity to make sure this happens. And they're like, they can use victims of crime. I said, well, you go and tell that to Sadie, an Aboriginal woman who was killed in the Northern Territory. Her body laid in a morgue for three months because her family didn't know how to fill in a form on the internet. You know, do you know what I mean? If you, if you say that that's okay for that to happen, I mean, and where were you to tell them that that's what they could do and how long would it take? Where's the... Isn't there already enough trauma in having somebody killed like that? So I would, I'm really happy to say that now each state in Australia is now equipped to be able to have a checklist when somebody is killed by domestic violence, but not until we'd already paid for about, I think we paid for 13 funerals around Australia in two years. So I'd probably still be doing it if I hadn't have fought the battle to get the government to be doing it, but you can't fix every wrong is what I had to learn because there is a massive burnout to that. And, you know, to do that work was, I was not emotionally equipped to do that work, to be honest, right now. And I think that um, that's probably been my biggest lesson is that, you know, once I'd done what I needed to do, I'm really proud of it. We never talk about it um, because I just don't think that there's any dignity in going, oh, look what we did. We paid for that funeral there and that funeral there and that funeral there. That's not why we did it. We did it because there should be dignity for those families to be able to bury their loved ones the way that the most, the rest of us would. So, I love that you mentioned the emotional because what you're dealing with on a regular basis is like a, a lot of people who are experiencing trauma and poverty and just pain and suffering. And mm-hmm. so how do you as a leader of this cause navigate and regulate your emotions so that you know when to take a break and you know that when you are maxing out? Yeah, uh, uh, that's probably never been my highest strength. I think that, uh, to be really fair, I think that COVID happened for me for a reason. It went, stop, you have not done anywhere near the exercise or fueled your body the way that you were respecting it before Share the Dignity because every ounce of me went into Share the Dignity, every ounce of, and I think there was, for me, a lot of guilt if I was taking, like, a break right? Because women need me. They need me. They need me. But I don't know where that martyrism bullshit was coming from because they need me to be my best version of me, which is somebody who's got real balance in their life. And I'm really grateful that I have that now. I have that now because I have an amazing team of staff and we've, you know, put a lot of energy and efforts into our um, volunteer structure and um, all of that sort of stuff. But that really came by COVID just landing me at home, sleeping in my bed every every night and having the ability to go back to, you know, going for walks every morning and not needing to always be in a hurry or wear, you know, busy like a badge of honour. Oh, man, I want to say that, preach that to the cheap seats in the back because so many, especially women, I see using that busyness as a badge of honour as like, the more they sacrifice themselves, the more they lean into this 
need, this perception of, of the need that people need them and people do, but they also need you, like you said, to be on your best, not to you be. You need you. You need you more than anybody else needs you. But, you know, at the end of the day, that probably came with, I did a lot of emotional fitness training last year as well as, you know, and that to me was probably the gold. I wish I'd done it when I was 30. Um, and I wish I'd been really, you know, I, I mean, I'd been fabulous at looking after my physical fitness, but I'd never thought that I should be looking after my emotional fitness. So that for me was a really big, big learning of you have to be the most important person to you because without you, then you're not going to be the best version of you for the women who need you, for my grandchild, for my husband, for all the people around me. So, yeah, so losing the busy badge of honour because as soon as I did that, then my thought processes started to come back. I started to think about different ways I could do things smarter and, you know, time management is the like the gold. You can't get any more time, right? So yeah. And so what, what, what was like an emotional fitness exercise? Cause you mentioned emotional training. So I'm curious, was there a specific exercise or tool that you used that really helped you to navigate the emotional fitness? Um, I wouldn't say, oh no, I wouldn't say trying to find mindfulness for me was something I really, really struggled with. You know, I thought if I would go to yoga, that would just work, but I couldn't close all the tabs in my head. Um, and that looks very different for everybody. But all you ever hear is, oh, you just need to get to that spot where there's nothing in your head. I could never get there. I just tried and tried and I just felt like I was a failure all the time. But to me, whether um, I still can't not, and I do wonder whether I probably have ADHD, right, to be honest, but to me riding my bike with Mamma Mia in my ears is probably a form of relaxation for me. Painting something or pottering in my garden is a form of relaxation to me. And when and I'd forgotten that to do all of those things that I loved and just be present in whatever I was doing and stop rushing, really. Um, you know, there was lots of things. There was lots of um, past trauma that I'd never unpacked or had any understanding. I just blocked it out. And to be honest, that is the why I was the busy badge of honour. I was filling everybody's cup without trying to fill mine. It was just, it was trauma. Mm-hmm. Uh, I work with a lot of people who have had trauma. I had trauma in my past and like that was definitely something that I did as well was being as busy as possible and struggling to actually be in the present moment, doing those things that weren't moving the needle per se, but really being able to have that, that longevity and that vision. And eventually the fear and and trauma can, can, it moves you so far. And a lot of people like you have been able to run very fast and very far and been very successful from that. And then eventually there comes a point where there's, there's a pivot that has to happen where it's like, like you said, when you started to focus and, and work on your emotional health, it allowed you to have that space to think bigger. And now you have a global period poverty forum coming together. So I am so excited for what you are about to accomplish in the next 10 years. I mean, heck, it's going to, going to be shorter than that for, for what you're able to achieve. I already know. So I would love to move into a bit of rapid fire, Rochelle. Are you ready? I am ready. All right. Who is your favorite character and a female character in a book or a movie and why? Goldie Horn in Overboard. I absolutely loved her. I loved her. I loved everything about the way that when she was there, she was so present, had no idea about the preconceived ideas of how she was brought up. Oh, beautiful. What woman would you want to trade places with dead or alive today? If you could like live in their body, feel, see how they think, who would you love to trade places with? Oprah? Oprah. So like that, that's the number one most common answer on this show. That oh, is it? Yeah. Why Oprah? Oh, you know, I just love her thought process. I love how she sees things from a different way. And I think that comes from a trauma life, right? When you've And I would say that I probably think like that now when I've accepted that the trauma was real. Um, But, yeah, I just love the way. And I just always wondered how she was so wise. If you were to have your success at twice the speed, what would you have done differently? I think I already had the success at twice the speed, to be honest. 
I, I don't know that I would have done anything differently in the share the dignity space. I think everything that we did happened. We are, we have a rule around here that says, oh, we didn't do anything wrong. We just now know different to do better. And really cult- that that's such a growth minded principle to be able to really learn from those failures and learn from those mistakes. Yeah. And when new staff come in and they, and I say to them, look, I just want you to be mindful that you can never come in here and say, oh, why did you do it like that? You need to be walking in here and going, you've done a great job to get this to where it is. And here's what I'm going to do to make it even better. Right. Because we just did the best we knew on how we needed to do it. Um, along the way so uh, you can't take a dig at anyone along this way because we just did the best that we knew how to do that is a beautiful training principle for for a team (laughs) to be able to amplify each other I love that what book would you recommend what is the number one book recommendation that you would recommend I think it's me first which is by Kate Christie it's about time management and making your team out of your family making everything into a team and what's their role in your life that they need to provide. Oh, I love, I haven't heard that of that book. So I'm oh, I'll send you a copy. I, I've, I lend it out all the time because it's one of my, the most beneficial book I've probably ever read. Awesome. And Raving Fans, I loved that book. It is such an old book, but I love it. Awesome. If you were, what would you describe to be your kingdom? Oh, I'm already living in my kingdom. My kingdom is surrounding myself with people that I cherish, that I respect, and that I really value, and they are back it. They feel the same way back. I think that's that's my kingdom, whether that's at home, whether that's in the workplace, whether that's with your friends, or whether it's in a room full of incredible women. I mean, I just think that that's the utopia for me. And lastly, how do you crown yourself? Understanding and accepting me as I am the best version of me today and I'm better than I was yesterday and tomorrow I'll be even better. Awesome. Rochelle, how can we support Share the Dignity? What can we do? What can our listeners in America do that can support this amazing charity that is having a global impact on period poverty? Yeah, I always say the most powerful thing anybody can do is have a conversation about periods. And have a conversation about period poverty because it exists no matter where you're listening from. If you're in Australia, then please consider donating to one of our drives. Head over to our website, www.sharethedignity.org.au and either volunteer your time or donate a pack of pads or two or put together a bag ready to um, make Christmas a little brighter for someone spending Christmas in a domestic violence shelter or experiencing homelessness or poverty. Beautiful, Rochelle. Thank you so much for sharing. I am very excited to donate a few bags this this Christmas for some women because this is necessary. I mean, especially as as women, this is something that no other woman should have to deal with not having the proper sanitary items to take care of the biological needs. So with that, as always, own your throne, mind your business because your reign is now. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If what you heard resonated with you, be sure to subscribe and share your breakthroughs and ahas with me by leaving a review on iTunes so I can keep the magic flowing your way. And if you aren't already following us on social media, come experience the extra inspiration and queenly convos on Instagram at crownyourselfnow or visit our website at crownyourself.com. I am so excited to connect with you in the next episode. And in the meantime, go out there and create a body, business, and life that rules.